Um, but before we be- begin, um, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to gather here and open up your word um, and talk about um, evangelism, what it really means, what it doesn't mean, and how to pursue it um, in, a, in a loving way, in a caring way, but also in an accurate and in a faithful way. We pray that you would help us to understand this and, and even energize us and strengthen us and encourage us and motivate us to seek out any opportunities that may be in our life today. Open up our eyes so that we might see the lost around us. In your name, amen. Before, before we talk about um, opportunities for evangelism and openings for evangelism, are you still passing those around? Uh, before we begin talking about that, I wanted to just um, address what evangelism is not. What evangelism is not. Sometimes, perhaps, it's tempting to believe convenient things about evangelism. And say, oh, I am doing evangelism all the time. And then you can kind of, you know, assuage your conscience when you feel guilty about it when your pastor preaches on evangelism like I'm doing this morning. But first off, let's just explain a few things. What is evangelism? But let's first understand what evangelism isn't. Evangelism isn't just simply praying for the lost. That is a great thing to do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But just because you're praying for the lost around you does not mean you are actually doing the thing we're going to be talking about, which is evangelism. Evangelism isn't also good behavior in front of unbelievers. It isn't just good behavior in front of your friends. It isn't just good behavior in front of your family. Now, good behavior is very important. It could cripple your message if you are living, if you're living just like them. But just remember, lifestyle evangelism is very popular because... It makes you very popular. Everybody likes to be around people that are good, right? But if, if all your being is good and you're never saying anything, you'll be very popular. People will like you. Um, it may commend the gospel message. It may commend evangelism, but it is not the complete work of evangelism. And I always like to think about it this way. And this is something that a professor in school told me, right? What will an unbeliever say or think when they see you just acting really good, they will say, great, another really, really, really good person just like me. That's what they'll say. That's what they'll think. You actually will convince them that they're good just by being good because they'll feel better around you. But that's not evangelism. Good behavior isn't evangelism. Good uh, evangelism isn't also handing out tracts. So... I just handed you a bunch of tracts. I wasn't doing evangelism, actually. I was just handing you tracts. Evangelism isn't really leaving tracts on, you know, park benches, bus benches, anything like that. Um, it, it, may, it may be used to explain the gospel, but technically you are not doing evangelism. You're just sending a few seeds out there. And if you ask me, all you're really doing is just, you know, filling up the garbage can when people throw them Away. That's what they will do. Evangelism isn't just handing out tracts. The human heart, by the way, is always looking for a way to avoid having a conversation about God and sin. So what are they going to do when they see that? The same thing I do when I see it, I throw it away because it looks like trash, right? Well, that's not totally true of me. Um, another, uh, another is not. Evangelism isn't just giving your own personal testimony to your friends. Now, once again, a lot of these things that I've talked about could be really good uh, bridge 
work to get to evangelism, but it's not in and of itself evangelism in itself. Uh, giving your own testimony is really powerful because it's subjective. And nobody's going to argue with your experience. But nobody's necessarily going to believe you. You're not really confronting them with truth. You're just confronting them with your experience. So if you just say, hey, God did an amazing thing in my life. This is what happened. Nobody's going to argue with that. But they hold their experience as high as you hold yours. So they're not going to argue. But they're also not necessarily going to believe. They have had experiences as well. It's very powerful. And it may lead to evangelism. But it's not in and of itself evangelism. Another thing. Evangelism isn't just or merely inviting your friend to church or inviting your friend to youth group. Once again, not a bad idea. It could lead to evangelism, but get it in your mind that this is not evangelism. There needs to be other things that happen. You you should want to pray for your friends. I'm not saying you shouldn't. You should want to have good behavior in front of your friends and family. You should want to hand out tracts. You, you should want to give your personal testimony, but never have it in your head that simply by doing these things, I am actually pursuing evangelism. Inviting your friends to church or youth group is good, but it's not everything. It, it could lead to something really good. You, it could lead you to having a gospel conversation. It would be very easy for you to say, so what did you think about this whole Christianity thing after your friends come to youth group or to church? But just simply inviting them to church, inviting your neighbors to church, is not actually evangelism. How about this one? Um, Sharing a verse on social media is not evangelism. Do you realize many, many good verses are liked, nay, loved by unbelievers because they're taken out of context and they make you feel all good? That's typically what happens when you have one verse, right? Unless, of course, it's pretty striking. But usually, sharing a verse on social media isn't really evangelism. Um, another thing, uh, evangelism isn't just doing social action. It's not just you know reforming our community. That's not what we're called to do. That's not what evangelism is called in the Bible. Now, I will argue that evangelism could lead to converts, which could lead to reformed living, which could reform lead to a bit of a reformed community, maybe a reformed household. But we're not here as the church to try to solve world hunger, erase poverty, uh, house all of the homeless, solve the drug problem. No, we're not here to do that as the church. We're here to preach the gospel and evangelize and make disciples. But necessarily social action isn't the gospel message in and of itself. And we should be clear about that. Now, once again, believers should want to do good things for others, for the people in their circles. They should want to do things and help people where they can, where, where, where they feel like they have opportunities to do good. But that is not in and of itself evangelism. Also, evangelism is not just apologetics. Maybe some of you love to debate, you know, the Bible, evolution, all these kinds of things. But debating the Bible... Uh, even debating the existence of God isn't necessarily evangelism. Having all the answers to every objection might not be evangelism. Uh, winning a debate about evolution is not evangelism. Con- convincing someone that God exists isn't necessarily evangelism because many Muslims believe that God exists and they even tremble more than you, perhaps. But they are not Christians. So it might not be just evangelism. Evangelism is not repeating tired cliches. Maybe you've seen billboards talking about how Jesus saves. Jesus loves you. God loves you. 
Now, there might be parts of the truth of the gospel in those messages, but the gospel is more than that. Is that a full summary of God's word concerning um, God, man, Christ, and our necessary response in that one billboard? Maybe, perhaps, but often, I would say, not. As a matter of fact, it's a tired cliche. That means people hear it all the time, and it becomes white noise to them. So just repeating things you read on a sign might not be very effective at all. You might need to explain more. Evangelism also isn't just one individual method. It's not just, uh, it's not just the way of the master. The only way to do evangelism is the way Ray Comfort does evangelism. It might be very effective, but there's a, there's a possibility that you could get so roped into a method that you forget about appealing to a relationship or, or, or seeking out a person or just even asking a simple question about what they believe because you're so wrapped into this one method. There are many different ways to evangelize, and you shouldn't be all hung up on it. It has to be door-to-door or nothing, right? It's, it's also evangelism isn't just a call to a decision. You've got to make a decision for Christ. Maybe some of you have been to camps where you don't remember anything of the message, but you do remember there was this moment that a decision was called for. The, pro- the reason I have problems with that is a decision to what? If we're not sure what we're deciding, what are we deciding for? I have, I have no basis to understand what you believe or whether you're a Christian or, or not. Uh, the de- call to decision is a part of the gospel message, but it's not just merely calling for a decision. Also, this might be shocking to you, evangelism is not even making converts. Making converts. I would say it's easy to make converts, but it's very hard to do what we're called to do, which is make disciples. To share the truth of God, but then also call people to believe and obey, and then help them learn and grow to believe and obey. It's, it's not just merely making converts, having a head count, it's, it's seeing faithfulness over the long haul. You can, do, you can do a lot. You can do a lot of converting, but not a lot of evangelizing. So that's what evangelism isn't in my mind. Now, maybe we could argue on some of those finer points. But sometimes we've got to be careful because we think, oh, if I'm just doing this, I'm fine. If I'm just doing that, I'm fine. But what is evangelism? Now, I've explained it in the past, and I'm just going to use the exact same definition for evangelism. I got this from a book by J. Max Stiles. This is his really simple definition of evangelism, and it helps me understand what evangelism is. He says this, evangelism is teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade. You're not just informing of truth, though. Notice. There is an aim in it, a desire to persuade someone, a call to a response. It it is full of information. You've got to understand things from a biblical worldview. But at the same time, it's it's a, a desire for someone to come, believe, and obey, and be saved. That's what evangelism is. It could happen in a big group. And it could happen one-on-one. And it's explaining, it's, it's revealing what all the Bible has to say about God, man, Christ, and how we are to respond to all of this. That is what evangelism is. Let's just break this down really quick. I had that little, uh, I, I like the, the four-part uh, four uh, package to the gospel message. You see it there in your little, your little tracks. And once again, I gave you these tracks on purpose so that you could kind of see where I'm going. Now, I'm not going to follow your track exactly because, as you know, I have two tracks out there. 
But notice, all the best gospel message, uh, messages that I've heard have these four parts. They talk about who God is, who man is, who Christ is, and then what, what our response should be to this message. But let's just talk about this. Just follow along. Take some notes of your own. Make up your own track, if you will. Uh, first off, the gospel message... The gospel message that you must communicate, you must teach, is first and foremost about God, who God is, and what God is like. I love uh, Tom McConnell, our missionary. I remember one time he came to our church and he said, this, is, this was his current favorite way to start uh, evangelism conversations, just asking people, what do you think God is like? That will open up a whole bunch of opinions. Everybody has opinions about what God is like. But what does the Bible actually say that God is like? Here's here's a few here's a few points for what God is like. God is our sovereign creator. God is our sovereign creator. Everybody knows Genesis 1:1, but this is something we need to insist on. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then Psalm 24:1 is a really powerful verse because it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and all those who dwell therein. Think about the implications of that. Just to say God is your creator, what does that mean? You're saying God is not only your creator, but God is also your owner. God owns us. You were made by God and ultimately you, my friend, answer to God. That is the truth of God being your sovereign creator. He owns me. I belong to him, and I answer to him. God is sovereign creator. God is also, the true God is also holy. God is also holy. R.C. Sproul made his whole ministry emphasizing this point because it was so weakly believed in the church. Everybody wants to emphasize other things about God. He would say, God is love. Surely that is the emphasis of Scripture. But there's only one thing that Scripture ever says about God three times in a row. And by the way, Scripture didn't have underlined, bold, typing font, and Scripture didn't have exclamation points either because it was written in Hebrew and in Greek. What did they use to emphasize something? They repeated it three times. And what does Scripture only ever speak about God three times in? That he is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean that God is holy? That means he is separate from sinners. He is perfectly pure. Scripture talks about how he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 says this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does this mean, that he is holy? It means no sin, no evil, no wickedness, no blemishes, no impurities can be at peaceful fellowship with God. God must separate himself in judgment from sin. God is holy. He must remove all sin. But also, third thing we need to know about God is God is just. And here's where we need to stop thinking about God in ways that are convenient for us and start thinking about God in terms of truth and what Scripture actually says. Everybody wants a just judge. We have riots in the street because people think they get no justice, right? Everybody knows what it looks like to have a corrupt judge. That's an evil society. But are we willing to say, if God is just, he must treat all sin the same, all sinners the same. If God is just, 
And he is as just and holy as Scripture says he is. Even one sin, one blemish will separate me from his presence forever in eternal punishment. That's what we must say about God. God is just. Some people will say, well, I do a few bad things, but doesn't everybody? That's the whole point. God is holy and separated from sinners. Matter of fact, James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one part, he has become guilty of all. That is the holiness of our God. You are guilty of all. You can't just say, well, I follow most of them. The holiness of God says all of your sin is a problem. Even one of your sins is a problem, too, and it will separate you from me forever. Even one sin would require my just, eternal judgment in hell forever. That's what God says. That's the truth about God, that, that we're communicating, we're teaching in, in evangelism, but we also must, we must also reveal the truth about man as well. Here we go, second part, right? God, man, what, what do we need to insist on, teach on, in regards to mankind? Number one, man has broken God's law. Man has fallen. Man is created in God's image, yes, and has inherent dignity, yes, and you could talk about that. But man is fallen from God. Man has broken the law. Man stands guilty before God. And Romans 3.10 says it this way. It's not even close. It's an egregious crime that man has committed. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Then Romans pulls all these descriptions out. Their, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is man's condition. We have broken God's law, and notice what it results in in our life. We have conflict around us, and there is no peace in our future. It, it is an eternal judgment without peace. That is to be without God. We are all sinners through and through. And scripture even goes deeper than that. Think about this. Scripture says we are sinners even in our most innocent state because we are sinners by nature. Romans 58.3 talks about this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. We have a condition that is upon us even from the wombs of our mother. And maybe you're going to say, well, that's the wicked. I'm not the wicked. My mom's pretty good, and she saved me because of her goodness. But the Bible also says even the best of us are estranged in the womb because it says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, this is David, the king, the best in the best of us. I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. This is the nature of sin. From conception I am born a sinner. Maybe not in all of the tremendous evil ways that I am as an adult, but I am still, by nature, sinful and unclean. And a holy, just God should judge me. And this is also what we have to believe about ourselves. We deserve the just penalty for sin. We deserve it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins, God promises, the soul who sins must die. That is the judgment 
the eternal wrath for sin. And also, when we consider ourselves, we must also grapple with the very truth of Scripture that it shares with us when it says, no good works will save us from this condition. Titus 3.5 says that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done. It'll never be by works of righteousness. You can't go home today and say, wow, that was a really convicting Sunday. I really started thinking seriously about sin because of that Sunday. I'm going to start being a better person tomorrow. And then maybe God will see all of this good stuff that I do in the future, and he will forget about the bad stuff. But that is trusting in your own good works to save you before God. You can't hope in your good works for the future. That will not remove your sins from the past. And also, by the way, if I can just tell you kindly, you will not be able to do it. What makes you think you can sin your entire life and then just suddenly stop? You have a problem with sin, and you will continue to sin. Continue to sin. Continue to feel the wrath of God upon you for your sin. Now, now those two points, God and man, those are critical to understand. If you don't understand those two things, the good news is not very good. You've got to know the bad news, otherwise the good news will mean nothing to you. But what is the good news? If you truly embrace that as the bad news, what is so good about the gospel message? For that, you turn to the third part of the gospel, and you realize who Christ is, what he did. He became our perfect Savior. That is what Christ did. He came to earth put on humanity onto himself. He lived a full and a perfect life. He lived a life fully as man and fully as God. And we could talk about that for a long time, about what that looks like. But that is the basic truth that we must believe. We see this from Colossians 2, 9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why did Christ come, though? Why did, why did Christ put on humanity? Why did Christ keep being man and keep being God all at once. He came to become a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sin to demonstrate God's love for sinners. Christ came to show God's love by becoming a substitutionary sacrifice. Some, something, someone that stands in the place of another that experiences the judgment and the pain of another. That is why Christ came, to live a full life, to live a full human life, so that he could perfectly stand in your place, and yet at the same time, he came as fully as God, so that he could bear the weight of your sin and not be crushed. Matter of fact, he came to bear all of sin's penalty. And this is extraordinary. Every time I hear or think about this, this is extraordinary. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? The bad news leaves you in a place where you say, I'm I'm a sinner. I'm right now a sinner and there's nothing I can do to change that. Not any good works that I can do can change that condition. And this is exactly how Christ comes to me. This is how God and when God demonstrates his love for me. When I am still a sinner, Christ dies for me. That is incredible good news. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 is even more striking. He that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I always love pointing this out. Do you realize the gospel message isn't that God simply chooses to forgive and forget all of your sin. That actually doesn't solve God's holiness problem. And by the way, that won't solve your guilty problem either. But that's the good news. The gospel isn't just a message that God simply chooses to ignore and forget your sin. The gospel message is that the price of your sin is fully paid by Jesus himself. Fully paid. The penalty for sin is fully satisfied for sin. Where does your guilt go when you realize that truth? The penalty for all of my sin has been fully taken on Jesus himself who came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My guilt is gone because my sin is totally removed. Not because it's forgotten, but because it's paid for. That's what you do with your guilt. That's what you do with your fear. That's what you do with your anxiety when you're ashamed before God. You say, what happened at the cross? Price paid. Sometimes we like to talk about or debate about, was it limited atonement or unlimited atonement? I don't want to talk about that. But just think about it for a second. This is total atonement. That's what it is. Christ totally atoned for all of my sin, and I should rejoice in that. It wasn't a hypothetical atonement. It wasn't if I do all these good things, then he'll atone for me. No, Christ actually fully atoned for all of my sin, and it's removed as far as the east is from the west. That is how far my sins have been removed from me. And Christ didn't just stay dead. He then rose, Scripture tells us. First Corinthians uh, uh, 15 talks about how Christ rose over the grave. And, and in rising over the grave, he, he demonstrates the true victory over our sin that he has accomplished. And he also says that my work of redeeming mankind is not just in bringing us to heaven, but also in a resurrected, glorified humanity who can stand on earth and fulfill all of the promises and purposes that God has in store for earth and for humanity. Christ rose. And this message is true, but it also calls for a final aspect. It calls for a response. It calls for a response. You must repent and put your faith in Jesus. That is the gospel message. You must come to Christ to be in Christ, and you know you have come to Christ when you have come both in faith for what he has done, and in repentance, in a turning away from who you are and what you have done. I forsake my sin, I forsake my will, I forsake the lordship of my life, and I come to Christ as my only Savior. Uh, Isaiah 55, 7, I love this verse. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. True faith has true repentance with it. You do not have faith without repentance, and you do not have repentance unless you also have faith, a coming to Christ, a believing who he is. Matter of fact, you must come to Christ 
totally as your Lord if you're going to be found in Christ, if you're going to have that eternal, perfect, satisfied atonement over you, you have to come to Christ and call him your total Lord. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's hard coming to Christ, but it's worth it. Because you gain your soul, because you gain eternal satisfaction for all your sin before God, because you remove all of the guilt from your sin. Right? That is totally worth it. But you have to come to Christ as Lord. Do not come lightly, though. Count the cost. You have to follow him as Lord. But also, do not come with your feet dragging in arrogance, thinking that you can solve it yourself, because there is no other way that God has made for man to be saved but through coming to Christ. Now, maybe perhaps you're thinking in the back of your head, why did he just spend most of the message talking about this message that I've heard so many times? Well, I have two questions that I want to solve for you this morning, and we're going to do it in ten minutes, so buckle up. But I think it all is very dependent on us first clarifying what the gospel message is. The two questions that I want to answer for you this morning is, where are my opportunities for evangelism? I hear this a lot, especially if you're homeschooled. <laughs> where are all of my opportunities? Don't, I don't have any opportunities, David, for evangelism. I can't. I can't obey this one command. Or another question is, yeah, sure, maybe I have an opportunity, but... For the life of me, I do not know how to begin the conversation. Where do I start? So essentially the question is, where are the opportunities and how do I open? That's essentially the questions that I want to answer. And here's, here's, here's here's my two theories going behind these answers. And you'll love these theories because they, maybe you won't, I don't know. First off, here's my theory. I have a theory that all of you here actually have great opportunities for evangelism in your life. That's just just a theory. See if I can back it up. And also, I have another theory. Starting the conversation of evangelism is actually very easy. It's, it's actually so easy that you should be careful with the little trick I'm about to tell you because it will get you in more evangelism conversations than perhaps you want. It's very easy. The, the problem is, the real question is, do you want to be in evangelism conversations? The challenge this morning is, where where is your heart at? Do you actually want to share your faith? Do you actually want to share the gospel? Because here's, here's my challenge for you today, right? Will you commit to thinking on and meditating over the gospel message. Maybe it's, maybe it's the outline that I gave you. Maybe it's the outline that you have in your hand. But this next week, will you pray through it every single day and meditate on the great news of the gospel to you? I, I just... I just meditated on it for you. It's a wonderful and rejoicing experience. Matter of fact, it kind of deals with a lot of my problems that I have from day to day in the Christian life to think about the gospel again and again. The more I think about the gospel, the better I am today, even if I've been saved for 10 years. But will you do that? Will you meditate on the gospel every single day for this entire week? Will you also, secondly, pray for opportunities to share your faith? And thirdly, will you commit to at least walking through the open door that one of your opportunities will bring you? Because if you, if you commit to those three things, I, I believe you'll have great opportunities even this week. And I, and I believe you'll have a great start to a conversation even this week. 
real quick, where are, where are your opportunities? Where are your opportunities? I would say this simply, the best evangelists are the ones that are the most faithful in the, the circles that they belong. So what, what you should do to yourself, you should say to yourself, where are my social circles? Am I being faithful in those circles? We, we don't need programs in youth ministry. We don't need programs at our church. We need men and women, young, old, all sorts of eager to share their faith with anyone that they get to know. We need men and women, young or old, who are eager to get to know new people that they don't know so much and ask genuine questions about them because they actually care about them, because they actually want to get to know them, but also because they want to know, do they know Jesus? You must be first faithful where you are, though, if you're ever going to be faithful any other place. Maybe God doesn't want you to start next door. Maybe he wants you to start in your own home. But notice the pattern here. The Bible always seems to suggest you go to the people immediately closest to you, and you begin there, and you see what that produces. Uh, Mark five eighteen. Jesus says to the demoniac, Go to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Or the woman at the well, she went right to her city, the people who knew her the best, and she said, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. (laughs) It's a funny little thought. Is this not the Christ? Or even Andrew, the brother of Peter, first found Peter and said, we have found the Messiah. Where are your opportunities? Well, where's your family? Well, where's your friends? Well, what kind, of, what kind of kids gather here every single week on a Thursday night? Uh, what kind of people do you run into on a Sunday morning? Oh, where do you go to school? Where do you play sports? What kind of opportunities do you have? Well, what kind of social circles do you have? Those are the opportunities that God has given you. And if you're not faithful there, you won't be faithful in some far-off missionary field. You can't, don't just go on a, like a missionary trip to work on your evangelism. Just start where you are. You'll know your joy, by the way, in the gospel based on how many people around you also know your joy in the gospel. But perhaps you're saying, I, I still don't know how to start. I, I'm still terrified that I'm going to sound weird. And, and we all know how this feels like, right? How do I turn the conversation into a spiritual conversation it's so awkward, I can hear it coming out of my mouth, and i just like, oh, this is going to... As soon as I say it, I see their face drop. They know they know what I'm about to talk about. They're like, okay, here we go again. How how do I do that? Let's talk about where do you start? Where do I start? Now, it it might be be that going door to door is a little bit different, but I would say if if you want to be a true evangelist, even if you want to be a missionary someday, you need to learn to be an evangelist with everybody in your life. You need to be willing to talk to everyone. If you cannot talk to your brother or your sister, you're not going to talk to someone else. That's where you need to first show boldness. And I would say the best way to start a conversation with someone you really know is in a way that is conversational, uh, that has as an emphasis a point of emphasis, uh, the mark that you're actually trying not to tell them something initially, but you actually want to learn about them. You want to know what they're like. You want to know how they think about things. That's the best way to start a conversation where, where you give them the sense that you truly care about them. You are interested in them. That's, that's where the doors open for me the best. 
Don't just set targets on people you're going to pounce on. Aim at people that you want to get to know, that you want to love, that you want to pray for, that you want to take an interest in, you want to learn about. Have an attitude about that towards everybody. I want to know people. I want to know how they think. So, here's my method. Some of you have already heard it once or twice. I, I refer to it as gear shifting. Now, now, how many of you have ever driven a stick car? Uh, a car with a stick. There's one guy over there. So, you guys, you guys kind of know the basic uh, concept, right? So, instead of the car shifting for you, you have to shift, right? Um, I used to have this Civic. I used to have this Civic, uh, Honda Civic, greatest car ever. And, and it was a stick, and uh, I wasn't very good at shifting. And so one day into owning the Civic, I destroyed the Civic because I shifted to like fourth gear instead of second gear, right? You don't want to shift too fast. You want to go from first to second to third, and you slowly shift up. Maybe you're more familiar with a bike, right? You don't start up the hill in the highest gear. You're just like this. You know, you got to start in a, in a lower gear, then the, the wheels turn slower, and then you pick up speed, and then you can shift up. Now, I would say... Every serious conversation you have has to kind of have a, a bit of a skill and a wisdom in shifting. Now, once again, they're not trying to be not trying to be sneaky, not trying to pounce on them or anything. I just genuinely want to know what people think and how they believe. Matter of fact, some of you are probably going to recognize this conversation because I've had it with you. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, um, first off, nothing's happening. All right, this is what happens. First off, you're just chit chatting. Okay. Chit-chatting, that's what we do. <laughs> Chat-chatting. <laughs> Just flip those words around. Darn it. <laughs> First off, you're just talking. <laughs> and a uh, uh, little side comment. Maybe you need to work on your ability to just chit-chat. Maybe you just need to learn some good questions to ask people because you just waiting for them to ask you all the questions won't help you at all. Uh, the first move into first gear, we'll call this first gear is, um, by the way, as is obvious, spelling and talking at the same time do not mix with me very well, so be patient with me. So first what I would say is, you say, tell me about yourself. So you just say, I mean, you could probably say that in a slightly smoother way, but in, in some sense, are you asking questions where you want to learn about them? Now, now that's not a very hard question to ask from chit-chatting or chat-chitting, whatever you're doing. But, but you can say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, hey how, how's this been going on in your life? Tell me, tell, me, tell me about yourself. How can I get to know you? What, what are some things that you and I have in common that I didn't know about? Right? There's a good way to start a relationship. What do we have in common? And then, from there, once again... Then you shift to the second gear, right? Now, this could take a while, or it could take three seconds, depending how socially gracious you are. Um, uh, try asking this question. What part has, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just summar, summarize this, Christianity, that's Christianity, uh, played in your life? So, so admittedly, the second, the second gear is a little bit rough, but hey, you're asking them about yourself, and you're saying, but you know what I really care about? I want to know how Christianity um, has uh, played a role in your life. Now, you may say, oh, that's really hard. Well, but if you can do that, you can do that. It's actually pretty, pretty natural. And then from there, you're down here in, in third. Let's see, what does it make sure? 
Um, this is the, the, the best question to ask. This is my favorite question. Uh, what do you think about all this? What do you think? Oops, that's an H. Now it's, an, now it's a smeared H. Uh, what do you think about Christianity? Now you could, you, could, you could perhaps say something like this. So we've been at summer camp <laughs> all week long. What do you think about all this stuff we're talking about, about Christ and about redemption and about humility? You, you could ask that question. What do you think? Well, what do you think? Or you could even ask this. What do you think it means to be a Christian? I just asked you, what part does Christ play in your life? And then you kind of gave me a little fuzzy answer, so I'm just going to kind of drill down a little bit more. What do you think it means to actually be a Christian? Now, once again, notice, if you go from here to here, that's pretty rough. I'm just going to say it out loud, right? Uh, but if you, if you move through that progression, it's a little bit smoother, and honestly, it feels more genuine. Honestly, you actually sound like someone who cares about someone rather than someone just doing something because your pastor told you to do it. Honestly. But you know what? After they say whatever they say, what can you say next? You can actually lead it to an amazing gospel opportunity with a simple question. And nobody's ever turned me down on this. Some of you haven't even been able to turn me down. Because I'm so nice. (laughs) This is what you ask next. Would you like to hear what I think Christianity is all about. You know what? You know what happens when you ask that? People are like, well, I don't want to say no. <laughs> but also, they actually are interested. Because they just said, and then you said, well, okay. Would you like to hear sometime? Ten minutes. What I think Christianity is all about. No one's ever said no to me. Uh, everybody said, sure, I'd love to. Because once again, on a, person, on a person-to-person basis, I am taking an interest in them. Now once again, if you're, if you're in a car, bat, and let's say, you, that's, that's, that's fourth gear. Is fourth gear a pretty fun gear? Once I get out of second, I'm not going back for nothing. Not even a dog on the road. I'll just drive right over it, right? Uh, but fourth gear is a pretty smooth gear, right? Right there, you're starting to cruise, right? right? Once, I'm, once I have their permission, in a way, to talk about uh, the gospel, I, I'm going. But it's starting the conversation that's hard. But, but I'd also say, if you try to jump from nothing to four, what happens in your car? Have you ever tried to start out of four? You stall, right? There we go. This guy's, this guy's got it. He's, he's mimicking it perfectly. Your conversation will stall every time if you try to jump it too fast. And I'm just saying, this is from my personal experience. Man, this is a much better way to do it. Just saying, hey, um, have you ever told a lie? Could work. But generally, that puts them on a defensive tone. And I'm just saying, I want to be someone who takes an interest in people. And this is the best way I have found to actually get into a conversation but, once again, let me emphasize this. That's easy. That's actually really, really easy. What's not easy is actually explaining the gospel. Now, let me just respond by saying two things, right? First off, if you are a believer today, you know the gospel. You know enough of the gospel to be saved, therefore you know enough of the gospel to share with others. 
but at the same time, you can also grow in your understanding of the gospel. So my challenge for you today is simply, hey, take this track home and meditate on it. Think about it. Write out your own track so that you are ready to explain the gospel. Getting into the conversation is not hard at all. It's what you do with it. I mean, you can spend the entire conversation arguing about God, yes. That's very easy, and it's very easy to get into that conversation. But I would rather that you actually told the truth about God, told the truth about man, told the truth about Christ, and told the truth about uh, the response that is required with an aim to persuade, because that is what evangelism is. Let's pray. Really, God, Father God, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. Thank you that we get to be called by your name and enjoy... um, no guilt before you, and perfect and full fellowship in Christ in you. We thank you for Christ and all he has has brought into us in relationship with you, and we pray that we would be faithful to share him just a little bit better. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.